Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. If you would, for the reading of God's Word, we're looking together at Matthew chapter 26. Verses 26 through 30. It's short enough that we can read it together, okay? So let's read this aloud together. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, the word of the Lord. Let's raise our hands and ask God to bless his word. Father, I thank you for this, this body, this family that you have gathered here, and for the love that we share, and I pray that you will deepen it, and that you will cause us to respond to Christ and his word, and these words about his body and his blood, with all the love of our hearts. Father, give me your words, lead us together by your spirit into a conviction of their truth and their meaning for our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We have come upon, at this point, a very striking moment in the history of the church. A a moment that marks the inauguration of of the... one of the two New Testament sacraments of the church. We don't know what we would say would be the inauguration of the first sacrament, baptism, maybe the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John the Baptist. Jesus did not go baptizing, John did, and so perhaps it's the the day of Pentecost or following that when the Holy Spirit comes with baptism. And so I don't know whether to say that's what the date of baptism's beginning is for the church. Jesus does command that they baptize, that they go and baptize each other. And so we know it's a commandment. But the other sacrament of the church is, whether you call it by the name of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, communion, whatever term you use, is is inaugurated here at the Last Supper. And so we see the beginning of something that is, that is evident in our life. In a sense, it's, it's celebrated constantly, but periodically. At the beginning of every month here, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is a, a formal act, and therefore we would technically call it a ritual, Um, which stands 
for something behind it. Augustine, the great, the great, great, great church father, said that in, as we come to the sacraments, we need to understand that they are called in the book of Romans, the Old Testament sacraments are signs and seals. It says circumcision is a sign and seal of the righteousness Abraham had before he was circumcised. So the righteousness does not lie in the act. It is represented in the act. And, and thus it's a sign. And Augustine warns, therefore, that we must make very careful not to confuse the sign with the thing that it signifies. All right? Don't confuse signs and things signified. And that means don't think that the, the blood of Christ that is the sign is actually the thing signified, which is what that blood, the actual blood, has accomplished. Don't make the mistake of confusing the sign with the thing signified. It's important that we do this because it's always and always the temptation of religious people to make the sign the thing signified so that we assume that baptism, which signifies the washing of regeneration, is actually the washing of regeneration. And so there are many people who think that if only they have their child baptized, and this is not simply a thought within certain communions, it's in every communion, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox alike, there are many who think, if only I can have my child baptized, then I can be certain of the salvation of my child. And, and let me add that, that this is true in in certain communions and certain branches of Christianity that say, oh, I would never do that. So they reject infant baptism because they say, well, infant baptism is looked to by people as salvific, as though it saves my children. And I'm not going to do that, so I will not baptize my children. But those very same people will attach the same significance that they accuse others of attaching to baptism to a childhood prayer that they lead their children in or to going to the altar if they have a church that has altar calls or something like that. So it's always a threat. It's something that was evident in the Old Testament when the people said, I'm circumcised. The Judaizers in the in the New Testament era that Paul is dealing with in Galatians and elsewhere that are, the, that are the ones that caused the Jerusalem council to be held because of their teaching. Everyone has to be circumcised. Have this view. Unless you get the sign, you don't have the thing signified. We must remember that the sign and the things signifies are very closely linked. And thus it's easy to make that that jump from the sign to the thing signified. But they're not the same. There can be a great emotion attached to a sign. Great significance. I, uh, when I would drive home from college and seminary and then from my internship in Southern California, uh, you know, <laughs> I loved being home. I loved my family. I loved everything about my home in Chicago. 
And uh, when I would see, I can remember coming west, coming east from the west coast later and seeing about in the middle of Iowa, the first sign that says Chicago, you know, 600 miles. And I'd go, oh, okay, I'm getting home. You know, that sign meant something. When I would come from Boston where I went to seminary, home at Christmas, there's always a red building on the south side of the Ohio Turnpike that looked sort of like a, it was a, a barn type building, but it was an, obviously a manufacturing, kind of a handsome building. And this was in the 70s and the 80s. And it's still there. It's called B-O-E-T-T-C-H-E-R Industries, Betcher Industries. And I've learned, because I've looked it up, I've always wondered what this place did that they make pol poultry knives or something like that. But when I saw Betcher Industries, I realized, I always knew I, I was within about four hours of home. You know, on a 20-hour drive, 18-hour drive, 55 miles per hour speed limit. That was a sign, and I would be happy at the sign. But of course, though, you may love the sign of Sylvania, and if you've spent, you know, a year overseas, and you come back, and you live in Sylvania, or live in Toledo, and you see the sign for Toledo or Sylvania, you feel excitement, but you don't mistake the sign for the thing it signifies. There's, a, there's an emotion attached to the sign. There's a power to signs, but it's not the power of the thing they signify, and we need to remember that as we come to the sacraments of the Lord's church. This is a striking moment in the history of the church as well because it's the inauguration of this sacrament by Christ, but it's also the inauguration of something that is essential to the church. And the thing that is essential to the church that takes place at the same time as this actually precedes it, which is, as we remember from last week, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples go, oh, yeah, which one? Not me. And Jesus says, this one. And John tells us that Peter says to the beloved disciple who's leaning against Jesus, ask him who it is. And Jesus responds, it's the one I give this, I give this bread to. Jesus passes the bread to Judas, and Judas leaves at that point and goes to betray Christ. He's already arranged to do it, but then he goes and actually does the betrayal, which is to tell the, the leaders of the Jews where they can find Jesus, where they'll find him that night, where they can take him in secret. And so immediately following that uh, departure of Judas, Jesus turns to the Lord's Supper. We know in John that he actually immediately following that um, I'm not quite sure of the, the sequence but Jesus is at the supper and he gets up so he, he says he got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around himself and he washed the feet of the disciples, okay? At the same time, Peter says, well, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't have me wash your feet, you can't have me. And so Peter says, wash all of me then. Jesus then speaks following the departure of Judas. 
says in John, therefore when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So he's speaking about his relationship with God and the unity between him and the Father. And he says, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By all this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the Lord's Supper, this teaching about love, and the call to love, follow the departure of Judas. Judas at this point, and this is the thing that is new and for the first time done here, is excommunicated. Excommunicated means to be removed from the communion, from the fellowship. Judas is excommunicated. Both, and this is always how it works, both initially by his own actions. He had separated himself from the love. He had turned aside from the love. He had rejected it. He had loved money more than Christ. And then his actions, which went on for years, are finally, the Holy Spirit leaves him, Satan comes upon him, and he's turned over to Satan by Jesus, which is what the Bible says happens when we excommunicate. It's to turn someone over to Satan that by their suffering under his hand, they may be reclaimed to us. But Judas was not reclaimed. He goes from here to a destruction. He is excommunicated. It's both himself and internally. And it's Jesus saying, go and do it. It's not in hatred. It's not in anger. It's in sorrow. That this one who had been a beloved friend would choose money over Christ. Now, by being removed from that table, Judas, at the point at which he's removed, Judas does not take place in this, this ritual of remembrance, this sign of what Christ's blood is and means. He's not there for the inauguration of it. He's gone. This is what the church does when it says to those who are in our midst but who are not following God, you're no longer welcome at the Lord's table. It's not that they're not welcome in the church. It's that until repentance is expressed, they're not welcome at the Lord's table. And it's for the purpose and the hope of reclaiming and re-welcoming. And by God's goodness as a church, we've been allowed to do the re-welcoming of those who have been excluded. But this is what's going on here. And what Jesus says is that there is a link between the sacrament, the ritual, and that which it signifies which is his blood that is going to be shed 
the sacrament, the sign, the blood, the great thing, the central thing. For this, Jesus says, as he holds the cup, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. My blood of the covenant. What is a covenant? All of you know in some way or another what a covenant is. It's a contract, an ancient form of contract. In the earliest recordings of it, a contract between a great king and vassal kings, secondary kings. A contract that is, that is spelled out with words and actions. The words are commitments to each other to perform certain things. There's always the promises of the great king and there are the duties of the lesser king. You can say it's the duties of the great king, but because he usually inaugurates it, it's his promises that do this and I will, I will respond in this way. The great king says, I want to make a covenant. It can come the other direction, however. It can be the lesser king saying, I want a covenant with you. But in the end, the, the agreement is made. The stipulations come generally from the more powerful one. And the less powerful one is left to accept or reject. If the covenant is accepted and embraced, then there is in ancient times... Uh, and reflected in what we've been studying in Hebrews, an act that solemnizes the covenant. And that's the act of taking an animal, killing it, separating it into parts, and walking between those parts. Thus, it was said that a covenant was not made but cut because it involved the cutting up of an animal. The significance of that cutting up was that it was a, as part of the covenant, well, it was the calling down of, of an imprecation, we'd say, or a curse on myself as a party to this covenant if I fail to fulfill my part of that covenant, all right? And so if I failed to fulfill my covenant, then my blood was required of me in the same way that at the beginning of the covenant it was represented by the killing of the animal, the sacrifice of the animal. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, we live in a lying age. One of the things as I read history and as I read books from the past I can't get over is how an oath, even among non-Christians or people who were just barely Christians, an oath was a precious thing. It was, I've, I've, I've mentioned it before, but I've read old books where uh, a man is quoted three, four hundred years ago saying, how would society survive without the oath? Because no one lies to God. An oath is spoken in the presence of God. It calls on God to, to be the witness to whatever is said. We just don't get this. We don't get the idea of a covenant that's calling on God as a witness, a covenant where we are saying, I will do this. We are lying liars today. We know that when our president speaks to us, he's just lying. 
right? I'm not talking about any particular president. We've known it for years. We know that when our, our intelligence chiefs tell us things, they're lying to us. We know that when our local politicians say things, they don't mean it. What is it, what is it when you say something you don't really mean? It's a lie. We are a culture of liars. And therefore, we don't value the truth in the way that in past generations, past societies, the truth was seen to be valuable. People would give their lives not to be seen as a liar. It's the whole basis of dueling and honor in ancient, not ancient, just four or five hundred years ago. Your honor was involved. And if there were Christians, the honor of God was involved if you were called a liar. But you call someone a liar today and they go, Argh. And so the idea of a covenant in a lying age is, yeah, you know, we make contracts and we break them. You know? That's what we do. And if you're upset enough, well, you can take me to court and we'll see who they agree with. And, but we break our contracts all the time. Just chronically. And no one thinks of it as being a, a besmirching of my honor. <laughs> That's just what I do. You know, this is how people act. This is not the way that God is. We may see a covenant as an anachronism, but we are bound by covenants. What is the most common covenant in our lives as Americans today, as Christians in America? Yeah, marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And the Jewish families, when the covenant was made, they would take a cloth and put it on the bed and, make, and it would reveal that uh, the act of marriage had taken place and that the woman was a virgin and it was cut that way. And if the guy accused the woman of having been with a guy, uh, someone before, the parents were to bring out that, that blood of the covenant and say, hey, wait a second. Yeah. So, Jesus speaks of his blood being the blood of the covenant. Now the question is, is it the beginning blood of a covenant or the ending blood? Is it the blood that's shed to begin a covenant? Or is it the blood that is shed when the covenant is broken? Jesus does say this is the cup of my, the new covenant in my blood. But we know as well that though it is an inaugural shedding of blood, it is also an ending shedding of blood. The broken covenant that the blood of Christ was shed to pay was of a covenant made between God and Adam at creation. The requirements of that covenant were minimal but real. God's command was to be obeyed when he said, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden of, of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. When Adam ate that fruit, he broke that covenant and became subject to death. So, speaking to the sinful people of his own day, the prophet 
Hosea, late in the Old Testament, says to them, but like Adam, he's speaking for God now, it's a prophet, he says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. I want to say to you that you may want to say, hey, look, that was a covenant between God and Adam. I'll accept that. But I don't want to be bound, and I don't think it's right that I be bound by a covenant between God and someone thousands of years ago. And so I don't want to be bound by that. I don't consider myself guilty because of Adam. But the answer to that, of course, is, well, okay. You don't want to be bound by Adam's sin and you want to start fresh yourself. But you still have a maker, a creator, a God. And he still demands your obedience. And if you want to say that you're not an Adam and you stand on your own, well, then you fall on your own as well. But if you're not an Adam and you say, I'm an independent operator, I don't get included in anyone else's thing, then you are separating yourself from the second Adam as well, which is Jesus Christ and his blood. You want to stand on your own? You can. You want to deny that you're an Adam and that his sin was your sin? But you don't understand anything. You're a fool, okay? You think that you can be an American and have your country be at war with Japan or Germany during World War II, but you can cut yourself a separate piece despite the president and the Congress having acted in their way? No, I'm going to make my own deal with Hitler. You don't get to do that. You are included federally in groups. They represent you and they are you all over the place in life. All right? But disregarding that, you have broken the covenant. And if you want it to be that you stand alone and not recognizing you're standing under Adam, then you're going to stand alone in the day of judgment and not be included in the blood of Christ. Come to grips with the reality of your life. You need the blood of Christ because that blood was shed to satisfy the wrath of God at you and me and Adam and every human being for our sin. It has the power to wipe clean every sin ever committed. Remember, Jesus does not say that this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for everyone's sins. He says it's for many because there is a duty and a responsibility that is yours as it comes to this precious blood of Jesus. And that is to follow what he commands, to receive this blood as your blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. How do you receive it? How do we receive the blood of the covenant? Well, there are some who insist quite stubbornly that it's, that blood is right there in the Lord's Supper. Kind of magical thinking about ritual. If I drink the Lord's Supper, I am washed clean. 
It takes away my sin. Again, let me say very clearly that this is not simply orthodox Roman Catholic thinking. A man died this past week who I really liked in a lot of ways, um, older pastor named Jack Hayford, uh, a, a great charismatic pastor, but very wrong in, in his ideas about the Lord's Supper. He said that the Lord's Supper is what he called a converting ordinance. Jesus gave it to us so that people who come and take it are made Christians by it. You go, well, that's a crazy charismatic view, right? But Solomon Stoddard, the grandfather of the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, had the same view. So I'm, I'm just being very clear in saying, you may well hold this view. You may think that taking the Lord's Supper is kind of a mystical, magical potion for what ails you. We all like mystical, magical potions for what ail us. We all tend to fall for them, right? <laughs> uh, you know, if you come to my house someday, I'm never going to show you, but you, if you raided my house and went up to the bathroom off our bedroom, you'd find the shelves full of mystical, magical potions for my ankles. You know, <laughs> I, I'm a sucker for them. I don't like this ankle the way it hurts. I have, how many red lights do I have up there? Three or four, and I've got a couple, uh, yeah. Okay, this red light therapy doesn't work, but surely it's gotta work, you know? Have you heard of red light therapy? Ultraviolet red light. Well, you know, there's something to it. I know, I read the reports on the, what's that? that government site that talks about medical gives, you know, it's, it's, it's an FDA or something that's, that. anyway, I, I read about it and there's somehow, I mean, I read recently that uh, if you take early in the morning and you look at wide spectrum, the two important spectrums, UV, red light, it will help your eyes. You gotta do it for 90 seconds every morning in the morning, you can't do it later in the day. So, so at least for a week I got up and, Stared at this red light, you know, trying to help my eyes. I, I have chondroitin. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. I have, I have, I mean, thing after thing of uh, curcumin. What's it come from? Uh, uh, now, it's that spice that's used in Indian foods a lot. What? Turmeric. I have chondroitin. I have turmeric. I have all sorts of things. I want a magical cure, right? We all like the idea of a magical cure. And we turn to this promise by Jesus, ah, but, and even many think it actually converts into the blood of Jesus. But it certainly didn't on this occasion, did it? Because that blood had not yet been shed. Do you understand? And if you say, well, God can do it across time and he can do it across, you know, he doesn't, he's not a prisoner of time. So even though it hadn't been shed yet, it could be his blood kind of mystically and spiritually. And, and yet I say, well, the, you know, it wasn't until Jesus had died that the curtain of the temple was rent. God's working in human time and he doesn't violate it. This is not Christ's blood at this point. 
But, I mean, we could go on and on with evidences. At one point, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And if we want to make it out that, the, that it's some magical transformation into the blood of Jesus, well, it's actually the cup that Jesus speaks of, if we're going to be literal, not the blood, not the wine. And then in our own passage, Jesus says, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He doesn't call it this blood. It is a sign. It is not the thing signified. So how do we receive the blood of Jesus on our account? There are two things that the Bible tells us. First, Jesus says, you must love one another. Both of them are love. The, the love that comes to someone who looks at Jesus and his shed blood, not like Caiaphas did, who said, he's going to shed his blood for the people, but like someone who loves him and says, he's shedding his blood for me. Does that stir something in you? When you come to the Lord's table, do you find it more powerful and beautiful as a sign of God's death for you than any picture can be of a loved one, which is also a sign? Do you love Jesus? Are you grateful for Jesus laying down his life for you? Love for Christ is essential. This is why Jesus says, this is the mark. Immediately after Judas goes, he does this and he says, love each other. I tell you, love each other. And that's the other. Do you love each other? Do you love and serve the people who are around you in the body of Christ? Do you look at them and say, we share this thing. We've been purchased by a great king's death and his blood. And therefore, I love you. We are a family. We're together. And to the degree that we say, you know, I don't really like you. I don't want to be with you. What we're saying is this blood of Jesus doesn't mean that much to me. What should be our attitude of response to the blood of Christ? There's a great story in the Old Testament. It's the story of it's the story of the people of a town named Jabesh Gilead. The people of the town of Jabesh Gilead lived near the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were enemies of the Israelites lords over them at times, their masters sometimes defeated, finally destroyed under David and Solomon, but for many, many years, a great threat to the Israelites. So a man named Nahash, king of the Ammonites, 
comes up to the town of Jabesh Gilead and he besieges it. He besieges the town. Saul, at this point, has just been made king. It's before David, it's before Solomon. So the, the very initial days of the, of the kingship. And Nahash the Ammonite comes up and besieges the town. So the people of the town go out to Jabesh, to Nahash. The people of Jabesh say to Nahash, cut a covenant with us and we will serve you. In other words, you cut a covenant with us and we will serve you and become your slaves and you will let us live. That's the, the outline of the proposed covenant, right? Am I making sense? So Nahash responds to the people of Jabesh Gilead and says to them, ah, okay, I will cut it with you on this condition. Okay, and now he's giving the initial bloodshed of the covenant. And he says that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel and he says okay you can have your covenant but the bloodshed that's going to inaugurate it is going to be the right eye of every one of you and I'm going to have you be a reproach to all of Israel and so the elders of Jabesh respond to Nahash okay Give us seven days to think about this. We're going to send messengers. It's kind of crazy, but he says, we're going to send messengers throughout all of Israel to see if they'll come and help us. If there's no one to save us, we'll come out and we'll make that covenant. The messengers go out and they come to Gibeah to Saul, who is a young king, just at the outset, untried, unproven. And they speak these words from the people of Jabesh, Gilead. They speak these words and say, hey, look, you know, and they're quoting Nahash and his, his condition. And they're there in Gibeah where Saul lives. They speak these words in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. It says, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. So it's so early in the king, in the monarchy, that Saul is out in the fields He's not sitting on a throne. He's out with his oxen, working in the field still. Saul is coming from the field behind the oxen. He said, what's the matter with the people that they're weeping? So they recounted to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he burned with anger. And it's a beautiful thing. The Spirit comes on him, and he burns with anger. The Spirit coming on us at times against sin should cause us to burn with anger. We see it with Phineas, we see it with Saul here. There should be a burning. Don't think that anger is always wrong. He burned with anger exceedingly. Then he took a pair of oxen and cut them in pieces. Like that Levite who did this back in Judges, but not with a woman, with an oxen. Sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, the sons of Israel, 300,000, the sons of Judah, 30,000. They go up against Nahash and they wipe him out. Now, that's beautiful, isn't it? The covenant did not get made. They were saved. 
But at the end of Saul's life, Jabesh Gilead comes back into the picture. Jabesh Gilead, at the end of Saul's life, Saul goes out with Jonathan to battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines win. And it's the judgment of God on Saul. And he dies. And the Philistines who've killed him take his body and they put it up on him and Jonathan on the gates of the city. But what a glory because the men of Jabesh Gilead hear that this has been done to Saul who 30 years before had saved them. And they go at night and they take the bodies of Saul and his son and they bring them and they bury them. They risk their lives for the body of Saul. I, friends, I say to you, Jesus died for you. He died fighting your fight. Will you not serve him? Will you not love him? Think about Jesus dying for you, his blood for you. Will you not serve this great Savior? Love his blood. Love his people. Love to obey him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean and gives us eternal life. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that no one here may fall short of that blood. Bring us in repentance to Jesus, in love to obey him, in love to prefer him, in love to honor his family and to be servants in his house. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.